Thank you all. Um, I think it's Zach. You wouldn't mind getting me a water as you exit, would you? Is that okay? Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. I'm a little dry this morning. It's that time of year, the most wonderful time of the year, when all the moisture is sucked out of the air. Do you know this time I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> and so, anyhow. Okay, uh, while we're getting ready to go here this morning, uh, fun fact is they're transitioning, something I learned this week. I was always curious about this question. I'm not a, I'm not a worship leader, uh, nor do I claim to be one, nor did I stay in the Holiday Inn Express last night, but I heard from a podcast this week on worship, and I've always been curious how many hymns were written. Like, does anybody want to guess how many hymns were written, like, since Christ was raised and all that time forward? Anybody want to take a guess? Chris, do you know? Okay. How many, how many hymns are in a hymn book, you think? About 100? About five or 600, wouldn't you say? Over 7,000 was the number that was reported in his pocket. That's a lot of songs, right? So it's like, you know, it doesn't even include like modern praise and worship, I don't think. I mean, it's just crazy for me to think about. We kind of have this like slice we like, and there's like a big, big plethora of that. But anyhow. All right, speaking of big plethoras, we have a lot to cover today. I've been kind of gripped and moved by this, uh, the narrative of First Kings. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, this is kind of part two of last week because I couldn't finish it all. We covered the life of King Solomon, kind of introduced it. I, I told you that... 1 Kings is actually a picture of decline, of spiritual decline. Uh, it's a God-ordained picture of spiritual decline. And I think the reason it's gripped me so is because this is the time I feel that I'm pastoring. Um, we're in a time of sharp decline. Uh, even the churches that uh, are kind of marked as healthy and good, they're oftentimes areas that need you know, revitalization and help. Uh, we can see rise of the nuns, people with no religious affiliation keeps going up. COVID uh, just simply kind of put into a faster pace what was already happening, the trends we were already seeing happening. And so what does it look like? Uh, What are its seeds? What are its fruits? What is ultimately the end of spiritual decline for a people and a nation? And so God has divinely ordained and given us this book of 1 Kings to help us understand what it is how it looks there. And last week we looked about the seeds of spiritual decline start in surprising places. Today we're going to see its fruits and we're going to see its end. Okay, that's the goal to get through today here in 30 minutes. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings and we're going to pick up right after here the, the Solomon has already passed. We're going to talk about the two kingdoms splitting here uh, between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So we're going to start out in 1 Kings chapter 12. So if you'll Flip over there with me. Uh, first King, the first little thing we want to kind of section we want to look at here is I want you to see, to note here, this divinely inspired picture as we see the seeds, the fruit, and the end of spiritual decline. Here in Solomon's life, after he dies, his son uh, Rehoboam is going to take over. Now, um, Rehoboam is. Uh, groomed for the king's position. He was raised under Solomon. He observed his dad. But who remembers last week what Solomon did, right? Solomon had ended his life not like he began it. Remember Solomon, the first 10 chapters or so, 11 chapters of 1 Kings. He started out well after David died and he took over. But he married women who were of, you know, expanded that marriage definition. And then he married women who... The women weren't the problem. It was what they believed. It was their belief system and their belief set. 
and their, their worship of pagan gods. And that was the doorway for paganism and to enter into and idolatry to enter into the nation. And they erected asteroids on the Mount of Olives, no less, one of the most holy places in, in Jerusalem. And this is what Rehoboam inherits. And Rehoboam takes the, uh, takes the kingdom in his hand there. Uh, he succeeds him. And in chapter 12, verse 10, we read about what happens. Young man who had grown up with him, uh, the, the northern kingdom comes down. They tell him, hey, you've taxed us too much. You have uh, made us work too much. You need to back off from what your dad had and the, and the heavy yoke he placed on us. If you'll do that, if you'll just kind of give us a little bit of a break. We don't care to work and we don't care to produce for you, but we don't want to be like it was. Uh, we'll love you forever and follow you as king. Okay? And so Rehoboam is, uh, you know, if you've ever, the, the, the term that I think of, I think of a scene from the movie uh, uh, with, where Adam Sandler plays Bobby Boucher, Waterboy. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, and, uh, you know, there's this one scene where they go, son, you don't have what they call the people skills, right? And so uh, Rehoboam does not have what they call the people skills, right? And so he meets with his friends, and they tell him, boy, you better not, you better not give in to that northern kingdom. If you do, it's going to be bad. They're going to rock walk all over you. So he comes back, and in this passage, here was his fine, terrible Bobby Boucher speech, right? Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you have lightened it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. So basically, he's not giving an issue of how fat he is compared to his father. He's telling them that, oh, you thought my father's taxation was bad. You thought that my father's um, uh, labor, forced labor uh, policies were bad. You ain't seen nothing yet. Why do you get a load of me? It's going to be ten times worse for you under me than it was my father. And then, of course, the uh, typical Southern Baptist business meeting concludes with, to your tents, O Israel, we're going our own way. Right, uh, And here, here is where we find Rehoboam. Now let me give you a little bit about him and contrast him to, Jer- to uh, Jeroboam to Rehoboam. Jeroboam uh, was not born in a household with a father. Scripture tells us he was fatherless. But he was very good at diplomacy. And he was good at working with people. He was very skilled as like a charismatic type leader. In fact, his, his skill set was even recognized by King Solomon. Uh, the Bible tells us in chapter 1 of verse 28 of 1 Kings that the man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And so the kind of great irony here for David's house is, if you'll recall... From, from King Saul's reign, first king of Israel, um, David was ordained to be the next sort of uh, king after Saul, and this, this drove Saul crazy, right? He was jealous of David, and he, you know, chucked a spear at him. Jeroboam will become to Solomon what David was to Saul. A prophet will pull Jeroboam to the side and tell him, you know, he takes his cloak and divides it into 12 pieces and said, take 10 of them. And if you'll follow the Lord as King David did, you will be blessed and one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And read all about that in the section that we're covering here, right? So he, Jeroboam has the promise here. He has the, 
kind of the will of the people, particularly of the north here. He is charismatic. He's, a, he's got great people skills compared to Rehoboam there. And, uh, but despite all their differences, one thing is similar. And the thing is similar between Rehoboam and Jeroboam is this. They're both idolatrous. More than that, though, it is <laughs> they're going to leave a legacy of idol worship that's going to mar the nation and plunge them into darker days ahead. How bad was it? Well, here's what happens. When um, Solomon hears of the prophecy of Jeroboam, Jeroboam flees to Egypt and goes into hiding, much like David fleed into the caves of the Philistines to hide from Saul. And when Solomon dies, the people of the north in particular call him back to Israel, especially after that meeting with Rehoboam. Come back and be our king, be our leader. And he accepts, and he's had the prophecy already. He knows if he'll follow the Lord, he'll be blessed, and one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. And what does he do? Well, being the genius that he is, Jeroboam creates a completely different religion for the people of the north to follow. And, being the genius of idolatry that he is, he takes a page from Aaron's playbook in the Old Testament. Remember what Aaron got in trouble for while Moses was up on the mountain? What did he make? Oh, we just threw all this gold in the fire and then out popped this gold idol, right? I don't know how I got here. How did he get here? I don't know, right? And, th- and this, was, this was what he did. He set up two gold idols, one in the north and one in the south. He made idol worship easy for God's people in the north. He set up a separate festival. He says, too much of a burden to go down to Jerusalem. Stay here in the north. Got an idol for those of you that are above this particular line and one in the south of the, at this particular line here. He himself goes up and he sacrifices on the altar here, offering to these false idols. And Jeroboam does the same thing. Rehoboam continues in the idol worship his father set up. And Jeroboam does just as poorly, if not worse. Um, says here that uh, the king made two, gold, two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one to Bethel and, one to, and put the other one in Dan. And this became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan before the idol. And he also had temples in the high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Now, verse 31 may not sound odd to you, but I want you to remember something. The Levites were critical for God's people. Does anyone remember how the Levites got their special position as priests in the Old Testament? Who remembers? Raise your hand if you remember how they got it. Okay, good, I'll tell you. Here's how they got it. When Moses came down and the idol worship was going on at the base of the mountain, Moses said, all you who are faithful to God, come to me and grab your swords. And they grabbed their swords and they came to Moses. And the instruction was, cut everyone down, kill everyone with the sword who is engaged in idol worship. And you know who the first people were at Moses' side when he made that call? Guess who they were? It was the Levites. And when the Levites did that, they secured their position as God's people, as the priests for God's people. And here, Jeroboam and the author of 1 Kings wants to make it very clear to you and to me. He is flying by the seat of his pants, making stuff up. Making up and crafting a religion. 
He is leaning into his own charisma. He is leaning into his own twisted belief system about God that is synchronized up with all of the false gods of the time that is around him. And he is leaning into his own ability. And he is crafting a religion that reflects all of that and leading God's people down this same path. You know, in 1 Kings 11, the prophet had said to him, while Solomon was alive in 38 and 39, if you will listen to all I have commanded and walk in my ways and do what is right, this is to Jeroboam, in my eyes and my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and you will, and, and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this but not forever. The author is crystal clear. Jeroboam has made these religions. It is man-made. This is, the, this is the problem that comes with men who are gifted and women who are gifted. They are tempted to construct and create their own religions that are apart from the one true and living God. This is why at Grace Baptist Church, we have to build this church on what God has said. We don't build our sermons here on felt needs. We don't build our sermons here on newspaper headlines. And we don't build our sermons here on how people feel. And the reason we don't do that is because you can easily get off the tracks of what the Lord has said when you do that. We start here with the Word of God, with thus says the Lord. And it has to be this way because it's too easy to get off track and follow after Jeroboam. Listen. I, I've got a book in my office. I, I took this class called Cults and New Religious Movements. Do you know what I think our number one export as a nation is? I think it's false religions, man-made false religions. I have a book on my shelf in my office. If you're so inclined and interested, I can take you over there and show you. It's about this thick, and it's the thousands and thousands and thousands of cults and new religious movements that have been born, on, that have taken birth right here on U.S. soil. Okay? I'm going to give you three of the thousands this morning to warn you against this morning because I, I see them constantly bombarding people online, and it scares me, okay? First one I'm going to warn you about is the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel. It is a weird, uh, deformed faith that is based on health and wealth. It is an odd merger of uh, Pentecostal theology with materialism. And what it basically does is emphasize the importance of personal empowerment, proposing that God's will for his people is to be blessed. The atonement in this theology is viewed as not reconciliation with God, but is interpreted to be an alleviation of sickness and poverty. And anything that is short of that is seen as a brokenness in your own faith and you're the problem. This is believed by uh, your faith and favor with God is seen through money, visualization, and positive conversation. One of the number one components of this today is uh, Kenneth Copeland. You've seen the videos of him with his flight and his plane. He, he believes in this kind of theology and it is wrong, it is man-made, and it is dangerous. 
Another one that is birthed directly from this is something called the Word of Faith movement here in the United States. By the way, the prosperity gospel was born right after World War II. Word of Faith sort of comes out of the prosperity gospel. Very similar, but it's about positive conversation and Word of Faith movement that Christians can just speak into existence anything that they think is the will of God. Problem is, the will you, what you perceive the will of God is is whatever you can fathom up in your own mind. And you're not God. Sorry if you came in here this morning thinking that, but I have a memo for you today. You're not. So you can't just speak ex officio and just speak something that is not into existence. It doesn't work that way, right? You're a created being. And then finally, and this one scares me a lot for our denomination in particular and for conservative evangelicals as well. Uh, a system called theonomy or Christian reconstructionism. Has anybody ever heard of this before? Raise your hand if you're familiar with this. Theonomy seeks to apply civil law of the Mosaic Covenant to contemporary civil government. Theonomies wish, theonomists wish for civil government not only to take its direction from Christianity, but also to craft specific law in the shadow of the Old Testament. I have heard theonomists say in public that the only solution with the homosexual community is to kill them. I have heard them say that, okay? And when I was at the convention in Anaheim, nobody came out and said that, but I'm savvy enough to know because I saw a theonomist invade the pulpit of the last church I served, and I saw him almost destroy that congregation, right? All man-made. Guess where theonomy was born? Right here on U.S. soil. Guess where it exists in the world? Nowhere else but the United States. Isn't that odd to you that theonomy only exists here? <laughs> right? You can't find theonomists in Germany. You can't find theonomists in South Africa. You can't find them in South Korea. They don't exist there. They only exist here in the U.S. What's the point of you saying all these things? There is forms of religiosity that is just like what the northern kingdom constructed at the hands of Jeroboam that people think are just fine because there's a lack of discernment and a lack of what a true biblical Christ-centered church is. That's all well and good, Pastor, but how does that apply to me? Well... Let me ask you a question here. When we think about Rehoboam, what was he relying on? He was relying on his own gifts and his own judgment. Are you doing the same thing? Are you relying on your own giftedness? Are you relying on the blessings that God has given you? Right? Are you leaning into that? And are you forgetting that apart from God's grace, we can do nothing? Right? You cannot accomplish anything without the grace of God. Are we following God this morning? Or are we following what we think God is? Nothing is more damaging to a place, to a people, to a nation, to a church than for people to not follow God as He's revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture but the God of their making. Sure, you haven't created a God out of gold like Jeroboam did, but you fashioned one in your mind that's easier for you to stomach than the one that's in the Scriptures. Smaller things may take up hours and days of our lives, but we must continue to refocus 
on what God is, on who God is and what God would have us to do. Anything less is dangerous and disastrous. Religious decline can have different appearances. One in Rehoboam, which was just a continuation there, and then one with Jeroboam, which was a complete new manufacturing of a whole new system. And we got both in our nation. We got both in our churches. We got both in our own hearts. All right, the fruit of decline. I can move through this section quickly. Chapters 15 and 16. The north is quickly in decline. It tanks faster than the south uh, because of the, the, the sheer audacity, I think, that is there. Uh, we see in the south that Rehoboam is replaced by his son, then Asa, who is sort of a reprieve, who does the things the Lord wants. He's there for 27 years, but things don't go smoothly in the north for the transition of the kings. In the north, um, Nadab, the son of Jer- uh, Jeroboam, who was sitting on the throne, is murdered. He is killed, him and his whole family is killed by Bashna, along with the rest of, of uh, Jeroboam's family. And so Jeroboam's line ends with his son. No one ever, ever sits on the throne of Israel from his lineage again. Uh, Bashna is succeeded by Elah, who is then killed by one of his uh, officers, uh, Zim, uh, Zimri, who is pursued by Omar. And then Zimri kills himself. Omar becomes king. And then I'll just summarize his leadership in the north this way. So remember what Jeroboam was. Remember what his sons kept the same idol worship there. Verse 25 of chapter 15, Omar did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. And that's no short list of people, right? He was worse. So what is the author saying? That he is worse than David's sin of murder and adultery and possibly rape, depending on how you see that. He is worse than Solomon and all of his idol worship that he erected. He is worse than Jeroboam and manufacturing religion. He's worse than all of them. And then he passes away and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than any other who were before him. And I don't know how familiar you are with Ahab. Raise your hand if you know much about him. Have you heard that name before? Okay. I, want, I think the best summary of King Ahab is this. There was a great preacher of yesterday called R.G. Lee. Anybody ever heard of R.G. Lee? He, pre- he preached a sermon called Payday Sunday. And the opening line to Payday Sunday was this. Behold, King Ahab, the most vile toad that ever squatted on the throne of Israel. That was his opening line for the sermon. Okay, He was the worst because scripture says that. It goes on to tell us that Ahab was worse than all of the kings before him. Here's, here's what, what's emerging here. from What are we learning from the decline in the north? Well, we're learning this. When there is spiritual decline in a nation... It's not the only thing that goes into decline. I want you to think about that line of kings that I just read to you a minute ago that came out of the north. Three out of the five kings secured their position because they either directly murdered the king that was in charge or they inherited the throne because the king was murdered, right? So it spills its way over into politics, spills its way over into a lot of different areas. Verse 33, Ahab did, here's, here's a good summary of it. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. He was worse than them all. Worse than Jeroboam, worse than Rehoboam, worse than all of them. A very quick succession, overthrowing. And what is this that's happening in the north? Well, the nation receives the king 
and all of these murders and murdering of families and rejection of the king and rejection of the king's authority, it's really just a flesh and blood picture of their ultimate rejection of God's authority. It's really just a flesh and blood picture. All this fighting and all this inviting is really just God giving them what they, a picture of what they really are. Because ultimately, they've rejected the Lord, right? Starting with Jeroboam. And this is just all of it, the fruit of rejection of God. Because remember I told you last time, 1 Kings is a book about God's people rejecting God and God calling them to reject that rejection. I wonder, do you see signs of rebellion in your own life? Do you think it is kind of self-contained like nuclear waste? Do you think the sin in your life is like the, maybe you don't think about nuclear waste that much. Do you think about it like your septic tank in the backyard, right? Like it's just contained right here to my yard and my house where I live. It's not affecting my neighbors. It's not affecting anybody else. It's just kind of my little cesspool of nastiness right here. No, it always spills over. It always spills over into the neighbors. It always spills over in community. It would be wrong to conclude that from your own comfort, and just because you can't see how directly it affects others, that it's not affecting others. Ungodliness affects more than just religion. It affects the whole, your whole life. You know, I've oftentimes wondered, what would have happened... Hitler's Germany. Hitler rejected Christianity outright. I was really disturbed at the flea market yesterday because I went to a booth and there was like this montage to the third rank. Like there was like all of these like dolls dressed up in third rank uniforms. And I was like, Xander, let's leave. We got to leave. I don't want to be in here. You know what I mean? The, uh, they would sing, the Hitler youth would sing about rejecting Christianity, rejecting the Bible. What if, what if young Hitler had been taught that, you know, murdering of mass people was wrong as a child, right? What if he'd been taught that life is to be valued? What if he'd been taught the truth of Scripture, right? His personal morality shaped a world of destruction and mayhem. No, your ungodly decisions doesn't just stay in your own little cesspool in your backyard. It always overflows, some more catastrophic than others. We serve God for His glory. What's the application here? Be sensitive to the Lord in your sins. You know, Richard Sibbs, he's a Puritan of yesterday. He would say, you can read the sins on the cross that they bear. That's a weird way to say something. So what does Richard Sibbs mean? Well, he means that whatever the suffering that you're facing, the reason that you're facing your particular brand of suffering, and this is not all the time, but this is true a lot of the times, it's because of the sin that you've been engaged in. So let me see if I can give you a quick illustration of this. Um, I will often hear, of course, the best example of this was in St. Louis when we were in one time picking up Emo's Pizza. Um, is anybody familiar with what that is? It's kind of like real pizza, but it doesn't have real cheese, and nobody really knows for sure what the cheese is on Emo's Pizza, but everybody eats it and loves it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not even sure the stuff's flammable, but anyhow. I've often wanted to test it. It's a St. Louis tradition. You'll love it, right? Anyhow. Uh, person coming out there. Hey, how you doing? Went to Becky's home church. You going to church? Nope. Well, why not? Pastor didn't shake my hand last Sunday, and nobody ever comes to visit me and see me. 
well, have you gone to church lately? No. So what he's suffering from, that loneliness and all that, he had withdrawn himself from the fellowship for no real good reason. It wasn't a health problem. It wasn't a particular issue preventing him from being part of the body. He just unjustly withdrew there. And then he suffers from loneliness. You can see in the cross the sin that is there. All right, fine. We've got to move on. I can cover the last section here. Well, let's talk about religious decline's end because God doesn't generally leave a people in religious decline forever, okay? So just hear what I'm saying here. The last section of 1 Kings, verses 17 through 22, chapter 17 through 22, deal with the, prophet, with the prophet Elijah, who is probably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. If he's not number one, he's got to be number two or three, no lower than three, okay? He is like one of the greatest, most powerful ones. He's sent to the northern kingdom in all of their base idol worship, right? Ahab is ruling, you know, he is a terrible king. He's married a pagan woman who has plunged them into deeper uh, idol worship. They want a vineyard next door to their house. They kill the guy and take the vineyard. I mean, it is an awful, awful time to be alive uh, during in the northern kingdom. And here walks one of the most amazing prophecy of the Old Testament. Now, I've got it on the screen here, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through about 45. I'm not going to read all this today. I'm going to give you the Cleft Notes version of it. But Elijah gathers God's people up, and he says, you need to stop being double-minded. You need to pick who you want to serve. Either serve Baal, as Ahab does and his wife, or serve the one true and living God. But quit, quit trying to split the difference. Quit trying to say you're one and the other, right? And so who are you going to serve? And the people just sort of look slack jaw, and they're silent, and they don't say anything. He said, all right, fine. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a little contest. We're going to see which is the one true God that lives. And he tells the, the, and you can read about this in 18, he tells them to get their offering ready. And he would go over right next to him there, the altar that God's people had let run down and had fallen to decrepitcy there. He's going to kind of repair and fix it up. And they're, they're going to call out to their Baal God from morning until noon. And it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because, you know, Elijah's making fun of these false prophets the whole time. He's like, well, maybe I ought to yell a little louder because he might be, you know, like in deep contemplation. He is a God after all, right? Or maybe you should like, uh, scream a little bit louder. He might be in the bathroom, right? Maybe he's in the bathroom. He'll come out in a minute and he'll take care of business uh, after he takes care of business, right? Uh, maybe you should do something like that. And then they start cutting themselves was the custom. It, it's amazing to me how quickly idol worship always goes to self-mutilation, right? Just quick like that. They're cutting themselves. They're bleeding. The blood is flowing off their bodies. Nothing. Nothing from Baal because there is no Baal. There is no God named Baal. And then Elijah repairs the altar of God. He tells them to bring the cattle over. He says to soak it down three times, build a little trench around it. And then he calls out to the Lord to accept it. And fire from heaven comes down, laps it all up. And the water that was around it that was soaked over three times. And you have this little reprieve where God's people say, okay, we're going to believe. And he orders to seize, to seize the prophets of Baal and have them executed. And it's a, it's a little glorious time that happens there. And, and even it spreads to King Ahab. Remember what I told you about King Ahab, how vile of a king he was? The Bible tells us at the end of 1 King that Ahab repents. Can you believe that? It was shocking to me when I read it for the first time. I like had to read it two or three times. King Ahab, the worst of the worst kings, repents. The Bible tells us there in these last chapters he acted very... Uh, abominantly with after his idols 
as the Amorites had done, with whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about uh, dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, you have seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And we read later in Second Kings that the Assyrians conquer them. They become a vassalary state and they are no more after King Ahaz. What do we see there? Is this a capital R repentance in Ahaz's life? I don't think so. Um, you know, you look at King Ahaz's life as a whole... It's pretty bad. Tempor- temporary repentance is what I think we're probably seeing. I love what my dad said. He put it this way. People will never change unless there's a significant emotional experience. And even then the change may be temporary. A lot. He saw Elijah, the greatest prophet of the day, and the works that he did. And he was moved for a season. But I don't see Ahaz and Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. I'm not sure he's actually there with the Lord now. What about you this morning, though? Have you come in here this morning with a sense of your own sin? Not so much before other people and who you need to ask for forgiveness for from individuals, but have you come in here with a sense of your own sin before God like Ahab seems to have? This is why the Lord sent Christ to take our sins and turn towards God. Will you respond to him today and trust in his promises? Someone reads a book like 1 Kings, and you ask the question, what are we supposed to do, Pastor? Like, what do we do with this information? Do we just turn and kill people who don't believe the way we believe? No. No, don't start killing people, right? We're not theonomists, are we? doesn't call to establish a religion by law. I think the days of theocracy from the Old Testament where God was their king are over. When Christ was killed on the cross, when he was taken down, buried, and resurrected, and the international church was born. Uh, a collection of people from every tribe, nation, and all that's different. You know, there's a, there can be a theocracy here in the walls of the church, but I think now what we do is we trust Christ first and foremost. Second of all, we work against radical secularism. I, have you ever noticed, by the way, that any kind of secularism, and, and we have that right now in our country, Marxism, communism, all these isms that are trying to be devoid and stop worship. That they don't just stop with worship. It always impedes on the freedom of the people that are under it. Have you ever noticed that? It always does. So we have a duty to kind of best we can push that away. We should secure religious freedom and keep the state out of the church. The state's job is to leave us alone. So that we can go about preaching of the gospel and ensure that there is freedom of worship here in our land, right? But for you today, there's a call, right? There, there's one of two things. Just as spiritual decline ends in one of two ways in a nation, spiritual decline in your life ends in one of two ways. It either ends with repentance this morning or it will end with God's judgment. There is no in-between. There's no in-between. Which one are you? Judgment or Christ? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this picture that we have this morning. Thank you for the fact that you show us this so that we know what to avoid. We know 
the heart check that we need. God, how there has been an inheritance of man-made traditions and sins that we have given and passed down. Lord, how we have, some of us have longed for a faith and we have manufactured one. We have built idols in our own minds and hearts of what you think you are when you have broken heartily said, here I am the whole time. Lord, help us to have hearts that are full with who you are in your holiness, in your perfection, in your beauty. Help us to have hearts that are fundamentally satisfied with who you are and not easily enthralled and satisfied with all that is offered around us. God, we know, we know the call here in 1 Kings. We know it. We're living in a 1 Kings type time period. Lord, won't you help us? Help our hearts to be full with who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning you've heard the gospel preached. You've heard the call to turn to the Lord. If you've not done that, why don't you do that today? Avoid the eventual collapse that is coming. Avoid the judgment that is no doubt to follow. Many of us are worried about what that will be or when that would be, and I can't answer that. But I can answer you this. Those who have trusted Christ have nothing to fear in the future. Our best days are always ahead. But if you've not done that, you don't have that promise. Won't you do that today as we sing? Please stand.